Hi, this is Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. Did you hear about the man who was trying to cross the street? As he stepped off the curb, a car came screaming around the corner and was headed straight for him. And so he walks a little faster, trying to hurry across the street, but the car swerves, changes lanes, and is still coming at him. And so the guy turns around, tries to go back to the other side of the road, but the car changes lanes again, is still headed straight for him. And by now, the car is so close, the man is so scared that he just freezes right in the middle of the road. At the very last possible moment, the car swerves and screeches to a halt right next to him. The driver rolls down the window, and the driver is a squirrel. And the squirrel says, see, not as easy as it looks. Well, being a follower of Jesus isn't as easy as it may look. And we'll see that struggle in the life of the disciple Peter in today's podcast. And perhaps you can put yourself in Peter's place and think about your own experience of what what it means to walk and live for Jesus today. So this is season one, episode 46, entitled Failure Isn't Final. And we're going to be looking at John 18, uh, verses 13 through 27. So let's prepare our hearts to hear God's word this morning. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus, and because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back and spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with him, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the Olive Garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Jesus was bound and led off for trial. A so-called trial, really, is a kangaroo court in the middle of the night, totally against the Jewish law. But Jesus really was not the one on trial. He was in control. Everyone else was really the ones who were on trial. And when he died, Jesus was giving his life away, as we looked at last time. He was not helpless in his death. The focus of the Gospels is on his glorious majesty, not on some tragic martyrdom. 
Jesus went through two sorts of trials, ecclesiastical or religious trials, and then a political trial. All of these events pushed through in the middle of the night between 2 a.m. and 9 a.m. Friday morning. For the full picture, we need all of the Gospels working together. And when harmonized, we see that there were actually five trials that Jesus went through. Three trials in the religious context before Annas and then Caiaphas and then the Sanhedrin, then two political trials before Pilate and before Herod. Each writer sheds just a little bit different light on the proceedings. And John is the only one to tell us of the trial before Annas. Well, why go to Annas? Who is he? He was not the high priest. He was at one time, and he still held the honorific title. But he was not the high priest anymore. So why go to him? Uh, where do I go for background on the New Testament, some people have asked. And one great resource is, called, is Alfred uh, Edersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. That's a good reference book for a lot of this kind of stuff. And we know from history that Annas was a notorious leader. To be the high priest, you had to bribe the Romans. Basically, it was a lucrative arrangement. The high priest was basically a collaborator with the Romans, in a sense, because the high priest kept the people in line, kept them from causing trouble for the occupying Roman army. In exchange, he was given a lot of power over the day-to-day -day life in Jerusalem and power over the great temple. Annas had been high priest for six or seven years. And to maintain his power, he had arranged so that every successor after him would be one of his relatives. And so all five of his sons were high priests. And then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is now the high priest. The next high priest in line is going to be his grandson. So Annas was the power behind the throne, the godfather of the Sanhedrin, if you will, a former high priest who secretly ran the show. And in the process, he amassed incredible wealth through control of the temple. He made his money off of temple sacrifices because people would come with animals, want to sacrifice at the temple, and the temple priest would have a look and say it wasn't worthy because it was bought outside the temple. We saw that back in chapter 2. The priest would redirect the person to the temple spot where the uh, good animals were, and they would have to pay four, or five, even six times as much for the animal. Plus, foreigners who came to the temple weren't allowed to use any foreign currency. They had to use Jerusalem bucks, and they fleeced the religious pilgrims on the exchange rates. There was nothing anybody could do. They had a corner on the market, all under Annas' control. Jesus had some righteous anger about this, like in chapter 2, as we saw, when he turned over the tables of the money changers and drove the animals out. That's when the fat really hit the fire. Gold coins went everywhere. And those were all Annas' guys. So Jesus struck very close to home. Jesus hit him in his bank account. So Annas was just waiting for a chance to take Jesus out. Annas is one of the saddest characters in the Bible, really. If you look at the question Annas asked Jesus, what do you teach? Here it is, 2 a.m. in the morning. Do you really think Annas wanted a theological discussion? He wanted Jesus to say something so he could accuse him of something and just get it over with. But Jesus showed his knowledge of Jewish law in his answer. A Jewish law person was never required to testify against himself, could never be asked to incriminate himself to bring it about. So sort of a Fifth Amendment kind of thing. And Jesus's answer put Annas on trial. You're out of order. Ask your witnesses what I taught. Nobody ever talked back to Annas. Nobody. 
So one of his lackeys says, you can't talk to him like that, and slaps Jesus across the face. And you sort of catch your breath at this. I mean, he slapped him. Somebody actually slaps Jesus. You can get kind of angry if you think about it too much because it evokes scenes from, you know, the, the kind of the gruesome movie, The Passion of the Christ, if you ever saw that. It makes me cringe. I mean, have you ever been slapped across the face? It's not that it hurts so much, but it's the insult. It's the humiliation. How dare you slap the Son of God? How dare you talk to the Son of God that way, much less Annas? Jesus could have looked at that guy and say, you do that one more time, and I'm going to turn you into dust. With his words alone, Jesus could have decimated the whole crowd, could have knocked them flat with one more, I am he, as he did in the garden, as we saw last time. I'm so glad he didn't, because I realize that in some ways I'm just like that man who slapped Jesus in the face. I've disobeyed him. I've forgotten about him. I've ignored him. I've lived as though he didn't really exist. I've acted like his teaching was not significant, that his sacrifice was not important. I've given lip service to him and not really lived for him. And there may be a more painful slap in the face to Jesus than what the guy did. I remind myself that there, but for the grace of God, go I. So I'm glad Jesus didn't say anything to the guy, and he doesn't really say anything to us, and he didn't say it to Peter, who is, is in his own way, did something more onerous than physically slapping Jesus in the face. He denied even knowing Jesus, not once, but three times. Remember when Jesus was arrested, all the others took off, and Peter stuck with him. And so you have to give him some credit for that. Peter and another disciple, they followed. And obviously this other disciple was John himself, who then can include these details that the other gospel writers did not witness because he was there. Maybe this is why the other gospel writers don't record Jesus's appearance before Annas, because John was the only eyewitness beside Peter. But there in the courtyard, the servant girl innocently says, don't I know you from somewhere? You look familiar. Were you one of his disciples? She's just being innocent in her question. She's not trying to trap him. But Peter's answer is sort of like, I got a very familiar face. A lot of people look like me. I hear that all the time. In the dark of the courtyard, Peter warms himself at the charcoal file of the servants and officers. And there's a danger when we just try to blend in with the world, blend in with the crowd and just kind of warm ourselves, comfort ourselves at the fire of the world around us, just trying to fit in. Blend in, not stand out. To identify with those who rejected Jesus. That's where Peter was standing. Two more times Peter is asked about his relationship with Jesus. And two more times he denies even knowing him. And finally, actually in the Greek, he swears at the guy and says, No, I did not know him. Peter, this impulsive and and boastful man, when he committed himself to something, he committed all the way. There was no wishy-washy half-heartedness to Peter. He left his life of fishing to go with Jesus, became a fisher of men, and he was a sold-out follower of Jesus. And he didn't hesitate to tell anybody. Yet despite his enthusiasm and claims, when the moment of truth came, Peter did just as Jesus warned he would do. He remembered Jesus' prediction back in John 13, 38. I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Luke tells us dramatically that when Peter denied him the third time, Jesus looked at him. Well, what was in that look? What kind of nonverbal communication do you think Jesus is sending Peter? Told you so, Peter. I knew you'd blow it. Right on schedule. Just so typical. Maybe it was anger. Thanks a lot, Peter. How could you do this to me? 
Do you think that was what was in Jesus' look? When we fail the Lord and we look in his face in all his dealings with people, what do we see? Not the I told you so, but a strange blend of sorrow, righteousness, love, forgiveness, and the future. Because Jesus was not locked into that one moment in Peter's life. He saw Peter's future. He saw Peter's potential. He knew what Peter would become. He knew that Peter would be a powerful servant leader of the early church. And Jesus saw the Peter who would say at the moment of his death, according to tradition, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. The look on Jesus's face, that strange blend of sorrow and forgiveness and the future. I hope we moms and dads have that same blend when our kids blow it. Give them the look so that they feel that they are still worth something, that they're going to turn out all right, that we believe in them, we have hope in them. That's the look Jesus gave Peter. That's the look he gives to you and me. So let's fast forward now to after the resurrection, John 21. We'll come back to it later. But the disciples went back to fishing. Jesus is on the beach, calls to them. They recognize him in another miraculous catch of fish, and impetuous Peter jumps out of the boat, swims 100 yards to shore, and there on the beach after breakfast, Jesus and Peter have this very poignant conversation where Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me? Sure I do. Then feed my lambs. Jesus repeats the question, Peter, do you love me? You just ask that. Yes, I do. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And Peter is dismayed until he finally realizes what was going on. Remember at the moment of this denial, in the reference to fire in chapter 18. Well, in chapter 21, there's also a reference to the charcoal fire. And the Greek word for charcoal fire is found only in those two places in the entire New Testament. That's not a coincidence. On the night of the denial, Peter warmed himself in the darkness by a charcoal fire. Now he finds himself warmed by a fire at sunrise, but this time with Jesus. And Peter has to be wondering, can Jesus still love me after all that I've done? Is there still a place or purpose for me in his kingdom? Yes, Jesus still loved Peter. But that failure, that denial, that sin was real and it had to be confronted, had to be brought out into the open, had to be addressed. So Jesus gives him the opportunity to match his three denials with three gut-wrenching affirmations. Yes, Lord, I love you. Not only did Peter need to know the forgiveness of Jesus, he also had to forgive himself. Peter couldn't be an effective shepherd to the young Christians or the established Christians as long as he remained in any kind of state of self-hatred or self-loathing. If he was unable to forgive himself, for denying Christ, then no amount of hiding, no amount of pretending, no amount of sweeping it under a rug could resolve that, and it can't resolve our sin problem. The only solution is the openness and confession before Jesus. Yes, Peter had failed miserably. He had denied his Lord, but he saw that Jesus still loved him, and Jesus let Peter know that he was still valuable to the kingdom. He was useful. He did have a purpose and a mission. In fact, he would be a great leader. Should we be surprised by the failure of sin that enters our lives? No. I mean, is God surprised when we fail in our sin and let him down? No. Does he stop loving us? No. God knows our tendency to sin all too well. We're not perfect because we're human beings being human. We will fail. So perhaps the first important step is to stop beating ourselves up. 
There's nothing to be gained in that. There's not there's no forgiveness or restoration in hating and punishing ourselves for our own failures. And if it is truly forgiveness and restoration that we seek, then we need to go directly to the giver of life and forgiveness, our Lord Jesus. Perhaps you can put yourself in Peter's place this morning. You've walked away from God, and now you wonder, can God still love me after all I've done? Is there still a place and purpose for me in his kingdom? Jesus wants to restore that relationship with you, and I urge you, if you've gone down the wrong path of life, that you find your way back through the power, might, and the love of Jesus Christ. Back in 1996, Chicago Cubs relief pitcher Bob Patterson came up with a great line when he described a pitch he threw to Barry Larkin of the Cincinnati Reds that Larkin just hit right out of the park for a game-winning home run. He said it was a cross between a screwball and a change-up. It's a screw-up. No matter how you have screwed up, no matter what failures you have allowed into your life, the Savior who died for you still loves you. He's the God of second chances. Stop and refocus on what Jesus did on the cross for you. And let me ask you, when was the last time you gave someone else a second chance? Someone in your life who failed you, who didn't deserve to be forgiven, a husband, wife, son, daughter, mother, father, brother, sister, friend, someone at church, someone who needs your forgiveness and a second chance. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you should forgive others. Remember that? Do you know the story of Wrong Way Wriggles? On New Year's Day, 1929, Georgia Tech played UCLA in the Rose Bowl. And Roy Wriggles recovered a fumble for UCLA, but kind of lost his direction as he picked up the loose ball. He ran 65 yards towards the wrong goal line. One of his teammates, Benny Loam, ran him down, tackled him just before the end zone. And several plays later, UCLA had to punt, but Georgia Tech blocked the kick and scored a safety just at the end of the first half. Well, in the locker room, the UCLA players were so down and discouraged. Riggles put a blanket over his shoulders and sat down in the corner by himself, just put his face into his hands. At three minutes before playing time, Coach Prince looked at the team and said, men, the same team that played the first half will start the second. The players all got up, started out all but Riggles. He didn't budge. The coach looked back and called him. Riggles didn't move. Coach Price went over to where Riggles sat and said, Roy, didn't you hear me? The same team that played the first half will start the second. And Roy Riggles looked up, his cheeks, you know, wet with tears. He said, Coach, he said, I can't do it. I've ruined myself. I can't face the crowd out there. And Coach Prince reached out, put his hand on Riggles' shoulder and said, Roy, get up and go on back. The game is only half over. Don't you know Riggles shook off his horrible mistake and played a second half that may have been the best 30 minutes of football he ever played in his life? In fact, the next year, he was elected captain of the team. Well, that's how Jesus dealt with Peter. That's how Jesus deals with us. Fall down seven times, rise eight. We're going to fail him. We're going to deny him, even slap him in the face. But he gives us a chance to stay in the game because the game's only half over. Have a great week.